Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. This episode is brought to you by Helper. Are you in search for the perfect health insurance? Well, look no farther because they are the ultimate platform that revolutionizes the way that you find, enroll, and manage your health coverage. HealthBird offers an innovative solution that is tailored just for you. They have a lightning-fast search engine that you can effortlessly compare health insurance quotes in milliseconds. There's no more tedious hours of browsing endless websites or spending hours on the phone with insurance agents. They offer a user-friendly app available on iOS and Android, which puts the power of managing your health insurance right at your fingertips. So again, you know, don't let the complexity of health insurance overwhelm you. Join Helper community and experience a seamless, intuitive platform that puts you in control. So get a quote today at healthbird.com forward slash dealmakers. This episode is brought to you by Bupos. Attention entrepreneurs, are you ready to take your business aspirations to new heights? Allow me to introduce you to Bupos, the ultimate solution for finding and funding your SaaS and subscription-based business acquisitions. With Bupos, you'll experience a seamless and worry-free process. They offer flexible funding and require absolutely no personal guarantee. I mean, again, you can go there, you can explore over a thousand opportunities pre-approved for financing, ensuring that you invest in a business with true profit potential. Bupos has got you covered. Their team actually provides one-on-one advisory support to help you making informed decisions. And on Bupos, you gotta remember, they've already approved over 700 million in funding and they've written over 3,000 businesses, finance hundreds of successful business acquisitions and have an impressive 4.7 out of five stars on Trustpilot. So you should go to bupos.com forward slash dealmakers, and that is bupos as B-O-O-P-O-S dot com forward slash dealmakers. All hello everyone and welcome to the Dealmaker Show. So today we have a really amazing founder, a proven founder that has done it multiple times. I think we're gonna be learning quite a bit from him and also finding his journey quite inspiring. Uh, we're gonna be learning also a lot about people and what makes successful companies successful. So without further ado, let's welcome our guest today, Carl Hartman. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Alejandro. So originally born in Queensland, Australia. So give us a walk through memory lane. How was life growing up? Oh, look, I think it's probably exactly as you you might imagine growing up in Australia, warm and wonderful and safe. (laughs) But um, yeah, um, basically grew up in Brisbane, Australia. I did university there. I went to the University of Queensland, which is um, one of the largest universities in Australia. It's got about 60,000 people on campus. So Good fun. Um, graduated, had an early career in, in media, worked for, for News Corp and then Fairfax, which um, uh, was one of the, the, I guess, the first big digital players in Australia. And then my first startup was inspired from my university job, actually. So I worked uh, for a company called JB Hi-Fi, which uh, is sort of the Australian equivalent of a Best Buy. And I was fascinated that people would come into the store. We had a limited amount of stores at the time, and they would try to get... Um, Big, big ticket items. You remember like 20 years ago when plasma TVs used to cost like, you know, $10,000? Uh, <laughs> and we used to try and predict what it cost to ship. And we'll, let's just say, long story short, we were always wrong. And uh, I think, you know, having an early career working in 
uh, some big companies. And, I, and my first job out of uni was at News Corp. Uh, I, was in, I looked after the retail as, as a customer segment. And interestingly, all these um, businesses were going online and none of them um, were kind of doing it right because they were just copying what was happening in the US at the time, which was free shipping. And in a country like Australia, which is the size of the continental US, but with only 20 million people, it doesn't quite work because <laughs> you don't have the, the same sort of logistics infrastructure and hub and spoke nature. Um, so there were some horror examples where they were literally losing money on things they sold online with um, big items, particularly like, you know, couches and TVs and whatnot. So I was just, yeah, fascinated. So decided to have a crack at solving that problem and the rest was history. So then let's talk about that. Because uh, you know the first company ended up being Temando, so um, yeah. So so tell us about how did the whole thing come together and and how do you launch this? Because I mean this was 2009, you know, coming out of the craziness, you know, of the uh, economic downturn that we experienced at that moment, and and also you know like launching a, a hyper growth business, you know, in Australia at that point, you know, probably BC was. Something new and inexistent. Non-existent. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. Well, yeah, I think as an idea, it was something we had started thinking around, uh, I think, you know, 2005 to 2007 as a sort of a, uh, as a, as a concept. But um, you're exactly right. Then the GFC happened and we were having some, some early conversations with investors, which is basically said all investment was closed for the foreseeable future. So, yeah, it was just something I think that was sort of on the back burner. Um, and then it was sort of coming out of the GFC, you know, we had started to just bootstrap it. Um, we had built that up to about um, a million in revenue, which is always this magic number when people start to take things seriously, like, oh, this could be a real business. Um, and then basically I, well, at that time, there was just no real venture capital. Like there's a little bit of private equity. There was no one really backing early stage unlisted Things. So this is really pre-LinkedIn in Australia. LinkedIn, I think, might have existed as a concept, but it certainly wasn't something mainstay. So what kind of helped me at the time is there's a there's a local magazine, which is like our version of Forbes, which is called um, the BRW. And I remember getting it. There's like a, a rich list. And I literally started just calling people's company switchboards and, uh, you know, just putting a bit of hustle in and just pretending I, w I had all these different skits. Um, it was literally just cold calling. And in some cases, I was pretending to return their call. Oh, he'll know what it's about, <laughs> games like that. And uh, I reckon there's about, uh, out of 100 people, uh, I probably got through to about half, which I thought was a pretty good odds. Uh, what amazed me, though, is when I finally got through and said, hey, look, I'm not after money, I was after advice, um, the vast majority of people actually met with me. And I, I really think some of my early success came from that, um, just the advice of others. And all I was trying to do was just actually just get some FaceTime with people that had sort of raised some money, scaled, um, you know, how, how they raised, who they raised from, when they raised, because timing is everything, right? And yeah, I can honestly say without the advice of some of those people, I just wouldn't be here today because, you know, I was in my early 20s and didn't really know what I was doing. I was sort of driving the bus and trying to build it at the same time. <laughs> and um, yeah, got there. Like, um, I think it was a combination. My first million raise was very much, um, you know, some small checks from people having a bit of a punt. And then I'd set some goals. And then, you know, came back uh, a little while later and said, yep, all those revenue goals that we said we were going to do, we did. 
And then people are like, huh. And then all of a sudden they all have existing networks as well, which we've got referrals. And then our, uh, our first sort of big institutional check, if you like, from a, from a, a PE that was moving into VC, um, and that was a 5 million Series A, which back then was huge. No one was doing that, those sort of numbers. Uh, I think, you know, quickly, the, the, as you remember, the rounds just got bigger and bigger and sort of those check sizes became, particularly pre-2021, <laughs> they got, uh, you know, a, li- a little bit mental for a while. But um, I think that's been the pattern in terms of, you know, raising some capital, having a growth plan, setting some goals, achieving those, um, creating that cycle of trust with investors, you know, it doesn't always go to plans. I think as long if you if something doesn't go to plan, I think it's just explaining why it did and how you pivoted and how you've learned from that, and then you know, double down on things that do work. And 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 I guess for the people that are listening to really get it, what ended up being the business model of Timando? How are you guys making money? The easiest way to explain it uh, is you've ever bought something online and you see all the delivery options in the checkout. Um, we were the first company really to do that, and we built a middleware layer that sat between the various retailers and um, the different couriers. And back then, if you went to go to any courier company in the world and said, do you have an API? They would have just just given the most puzzled look. Um, There was no, they didn't have APIs. They didn't have any integration layers. At best, they sort of might've had an FTP file transfer, right? Like, um, so they were very unsophisticated um, during the birth of e-commerce. And I think we acted as a technology partner to really, Basically, uh, I think just bring them into that that modern uh, way of of trading electronically, right? Um, and then, so we started off. Um, the only real way to uh, to get around some of the technical hurdles is we had to actually um, handle the money and the transaction. Um, that, as they got more sort of advanced, is something that they um, you know long term didn't want to do because they want to be close to their customer, which we perfectly understood. Um, so where we sort of settled um, was like just a B2B um, SaaS model. So we would sell technology um, to the retailers, which would enable them to trade um, with the various career companies. Uh, and then we integrated really deeply with all the, um, the e-commerce platforms. So the, you know, the, at the time, the Magentos, the Shopify's, the big commerces and so forth. And uh, also prior to the acquisition, how much did you guys raise for the company? Uh, so yeah, we did a, a million seed, five Series A, and fifty Series B. So fifty-six million Australian. Which back 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 then the US dollars were, I think, were about one for one. Uh, these days it's about one point five. So it's <laughs> it's a yeah, little little bit sad in terms of the exchange rates. So yeah, call it I don't know thirty-five ish million USD at current exchange rates. And 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 how was that experience too of uh, you know coming from Australia to San Francisco because uh, this was you know around the time with this company you know that uh, that you also tested the waters in the US. Yeah, yeah. So um, we had picked up some really big global brands. Um, a lot of them had a presence in the US as well. So we got to I guess expand into that market um, um, on the back of those contracts. But yeah, what what I was finding is most of our technology partners back then were were Bay Area based, and I was coming oh, probably every twelve weeks or so. And it just got to the point where what I found as a foreign founder is like I would fly over, have some great conversations, and many of them would just stay as conversations because it's like without you being on the ground to progress them week to week, month to month, um, if you're out of sight, you're out of mind, um, particularly you know, for e-commerce at the time. I mean, the Bay Area was very much the, the hub of activity for that. 
So it got to the point where um, on the back of our Series B, um, I just decided to move over and just be the vanguard, if you like, build a team. Um, and then, yeah, that proved to be a, a, a very important decision because it just allowed us to sort of forge some big global partnerships with a lot of those uh, those companies that were based there. So how did the acquisition come about? Look, I think it was one of those classic examples as we started to um, to do uh, go deeper down the sort of the value chain. We started to partner directly with some of the postal companies um, and in particular, um, there was a couple of big technology suppliers um, to the postal authorities. Um, one was Pitney Bowes based out of the US, one was Neopost based out of France. And then I, I think we just caught the eye as we started to form these partnerships, <laughs> you know, with some of these companies. And, you know, if you've got a big company who's, a, a, um, I guess, the default or the incumbent supplier uh, to a lot of these um, you know, that they start to see value that you have that they don't. And um, obviously, they look to fill that gap. And uh, I guess the rest is history. <laughs> and how does that look like when a partnership turns, you know, into an M&A, you know, uh, transaction? Well, I think in our case, um, we had no partnership with the company that bought us. It was more, I think we were a risk um, that we would assert the, uh, the incumbent supplier. So, I think that's that's what creates the M and A transaction, right? Is like, uh, you know, it's it's FOMO, fear of missing out. So, you know, you sprinkle some competitive tension in there, and um, I think that's how you get the best result. Was it a long process from uh, the beginning of the conversations to the moment that everything was said and done? Yeah, look, always. I mean, I, I think you, you, even when you've got enthusiasm from both sides, um, particularly if you're, you know, dealing with a listed company, um, there's a, a certain speed um, that they, they move at. So I, I would say in memory, probably about oh, six months to a year is probably the, the full cycle. <clears throat> and uh, in terms of um, of this, I mean, obviously, first company, you know, first exit, which is remarkable. Uh, and I believe that it was in the nine figures. So, uh, so really nice. Hey, guys. So pardon the interruption here. So I got to tell you that, you know, for those of you that are either looking to raise money or you're looking to get your company acquired, you don't have to be alone. You know, there's a lot of psychology that needs to be blended with strategy, with methodology, with process. And it's very hard. And already doing your business alone is super, super difficult. So I remember, you know, back then when I was an entrepreneur, I kept really experiencing the challenge of either knowing or finding the right type of access to the right type of investors or really understanding what was the right type of guidance, you know, that would carry me through the process, whether it was with seeking money or with going through the acquisition. So that gap that I found being an entrepreneur is ultimately what pushed me later on when I met my co-founder at Pantera, Mike Sieverson, to really put together an advisory firm where we are guiding entrepreneurs and founding teams through the capital raising efforts, whether you are at a seed stage or at a series A stage, or if you are going through the process of an acquisition and you are in small to mid cap type of um, a cycle. So, Again, you know, we would help you from guiding you and, and supporting you from A to C all the way to the end as an extension of your team. And there's no reason for you to do this alone. So with that being said, if you would like to find out more, feel free to send me an email at alejandro at panteraadvisors.com. And we would love to take a look at helping you out. And then how was life there, you know, when you went there to Australia? Because 
you know, they say once an entrepreneur, always an entrepreneur. So I'm sure that you didn't, you know, like stop, you know, and in fact, you have two babies now, not one. You have two that you are running at the same time in parallel. So, uh, so tell us about it. Yeah, well, my original plan was to do nothing for a while. Um, that lasted precisely 12 weeks. And I think out of my first exit, I got enough to be comfortable, but not enough to do nothing. And in retrospect, that was the perfect amount. If you get into FU sort of money territory, I think maybe, you know, you lose a little bit of passion. But um, for me, it was like, I found out about myself, I need to be busy to be happy. Uh, and then I, there's two guys I went to university with, um, you know, one was, um, was Rudy with Compono. And my biggest learning out of um, building Tamanda was people. And I think there was two experiences there that, um, that shaped me. The first was, um, you know, I think at the Series uh, A stage, um, we had some investors came in, they said hire a COO. Um, I did, um, let's just say long story short, that didn't work well. And it wasn't because it was a bad person. It was just someone on paper that looked right that was wrong because they had come from a big company and we were a 50-person company. And let's just say the, the way that someone executes in a 20,000-person company is very different to 50. And um, you can have a bit of a square peg, round hole situation. And then when I was in the Bay Area, um, I had to go head-to-head -head with companies that literally have unlimited budget for talent. Um, my favorite experience was I was interviewing someone who in the interview asked me what was on the menu each week. And I said, we're a team of 12. We don't have a chef. And this person said, oh, well, this, this job's not for me because I don't want to spend my own money on food. And um, I think that was very, uh, um, you know, indicative of what the, um, I guess, the entitlement culture was a little bit in the Bay Area at the time. Um, I'd love to know if that's still the case in 2023. I think a lot of those, you know, perks have been wound down a lot in a lot of companies. But, yeah, I mean, you, you, you have people that were offering crazy salaries and crazy perks that I couldn't do. So, But I had some great experience where I went further down the talent pool. I identified some people that had great potential, um, but I just had to upskill them and um, had some people that had this, um, you know, one guy who was, worked for me and um, my sales team, he actually came from the Coast Guard. He was medically discharged, just wanted uh, uh, a chance and, you know, became one of my top sales performers. So kind of got me thinking how many other people are having the same problem. And as I spoke to other CEOs, the answer was pretty much everyone, <laughs> you know, in terms of iterations. And, you know, you flash forward post-COVID 2023, you talk to any founder, you talk to any VC and said, what's the number one problem you're having? Or what's the number one problem um, your portfolio companies are having, respectively? And they all say it is a skill shortage. It is they either can't find enough people full stop um, or they can't find enough good people in terms of that, um, you know, they want to hire uh, or it's just keeping the people they have, right? So ultimately, that's um, my, the first company I founded post-exit with Rudy was uh, Compono. Um, it's focused on solving the skill shortage, which we do in two ways. Um, you know, one, we have um, our hire product, which basically integrates with a thousand job boards across a hundred countries. Um, and we've built an engine that does skill qualification and culture fit matching of talent. And um, at the heart of that, we've built uh, a bit of a brain that ingests sort of, you know, circa uh, one and a half million candidates a month um, from 350,000 jobs we put out a month. And uh, we've built a taxonomy of sort of 58,000 skills and 28,000 qualifications. And that's using AI, it's self-learning every month, just 
gathering more information um, just automatically. Um, and we've got a real deep understanding of um, talent at um, three levels where we, we're seeing what skills people are using in different roles. Um, we're seeing, um, we've got our own proprietary psychometrics so we can see, um, you know, what is the ideal work environment of someone? Um, what's their ideal job design and how's their personality fit? And um, part of the platform actually has an employee survey that can go out and measure that in three minutes from an organization. So in um, in context, what's what's happening a lot at the moment is this, this weird economic cycle where people are sort of simultaneously hiring and firing. So they're, um, you know, they might be right-sizing in their core country, but they're looking potentially for cheaper labor inputs. And that's something which we, post-COVID can give people a lens into global global talent. So, for example, you might have um, a company in, a, in the US um, that, um, that might be considering, say, people within the time zone. And you might only get 10, 20 people apply, say, in the Bay Area, but all of a sudden you consider Canada, Mexico, Argentina, I don't know, Chile. <laughs> um, you might get 500 people, right? Uh, and then you need a way to quickly ascertain in that bucket um, you know, who might be a, um, a good fit for the company. And particularly if it is a remote role, can they work remotely successfully? Because that can either go really well or really badly, depending on the type of person. Um, and then we've also, for roles that can't be done um, globally, we've got a part of the platform where we can uh, effectively micro-credential and upskill talent. Um, so that's doing about 100,000 micro-credentials a month. Um, and uh, yeah, it's, um, it's, I think it's a really interesting use case because I think there's a lot of those yes, but type of use cases where someone comes through the door and they're, particularly if you can see that the culture fit and the soft skills and they're a perfect match. However, then they tend to be sometimes missing some hard skills. Um, the good thing about that situation, right, is that you can teach people new skills it's really hard to teach someone, you know, uh, like you can't change someone's personality. So, you know, if you're set in your ways, particularly as an adult, your personality is pretty <laughs> immutable. <laughs> but, hey, you know, you, you don't have a, a qualification in, I don't know, a, a financial services legislation. You can probably pick that up and smash that in a quarter, right? So solvable problem. <laughs> so, so obviously, if uh, launching and, and building and scaling a company is it's not easy, you decided to do it, you know, twice yeah yeah because i'm because i'm absolute sucker for punishment so yeah the second one that uh, i co-founded was with um and, uh, funnily enough uh, another guy i met at uni and uh we we, we worked at jbi together um which was liars so my, my other big learning was so i was traveling uh, so i built a my first business was a you know a global business and um had people in sort of six countries my peak year of travel was 230 days and I think my career average has been, I don't know, between 100 to 150 days on the road. It's, um, you know, so like for the listeners, it's like if you ever think about being a global CEO, they're the parts that's kind of left out of the details. It's like it sounds fun, but <laughs> you actually do spend a lot of time, you know, on the road. And anyways, I, come, I came back and, uh, and then Mark was working on these liquids. And I was like, oh, what's the concept here? And he's like, oh, look, um, he had... Um, spent his whole career in in consumer goods and uh first wave was really this you know plant-based dairy right and everyone was like oh you know is that a thing and they're like you know this, this sounds a bit niche now it's like 15 percent of the category that it's plant-based meat and what was happening with this better for you wave um he had noticed that for the first time alcohol growth was starting to slow and um there was a few brands that were popping up in terms of um, being non-alcoholic but 
sort of mark, marketed for the adult occasion, but they're all either very bad or didn't quite allow people to recreate the drinks they knew and loved. So the concept of liars was to recreate all the major spirits um, in a non-alcoholic format. Um, so you could basically have any drink that you know um, either with less alcohol or alcohol-free. And, um, you know, so that, this is everything from making a non-alcoholic margarita to an espresso martini to a Negroni and so forth. And the early movers in the spirits place were all sort of gin adjacent. They didn't really taste like the base spirit. Um, so we had taken a very science-led approach to do that. So anyways, um, joined Mark as um, his co-founder um, and then because I, my, my thought on it was, look, I would be the first customer of this as someone who's traveled a lot. I mean, I had ended up sort of at the end of my first startup journey being, you know, overweight, exhausted, because uh, it was just a byproduct of going from function to function and having this, I guess, societal pressure to drink all the time, right? Like you go visit your team for a week and they want to take you to a client every night and before you know it, you've been out sort of five, six nights a week and it's just not sustainable. And particularly in places that have a big drinking culture like a, like a London or a, or a to- Tokyo where you go, I'm not drinking, and they're like, what's wrong with you? Um, and that's changed obviously a little bit post-COVID, but back then it was like very weird, <laughs> you know, New York. New York's another place where just like, you know, it's just so easy to just kind of go on for an after-work drink. Um Anyways, came back and I was like, I'd be the first customer for this. And I'd already started drinking a lot less and getting really fit. A byproduct of moving to where I was was, you know, good weather, good lifestyle, right? And you start to prioritize fitness and health. Um, but then I think the big wave for us was uh, was COVID. And um, it was interesting because at the start of COVID, I mean, we, we had launched the business. I think we had expanded into uh, maybe six or 10 countries at that time um, on a distributor-led approach. But what basically happened was all our bars and restaurants simultaneously shut. And we were freaking out and started saying, oh, my God, how are we going to trade through this? Um, but we sort of pivoted uh, my e-commerce background. We just went all in on e-commerce and um it was fascinating, actually, because we had a completely captive audience through digital acquisition channels, and that was probably the best thing we did. We we had wanted to be a, sort of a, a digitally-led brand first and foremost, but it was like fish in a barrel at that time, and I think a lot of people in our space, um, you know, the direct-to-consumer piece was an afterthought, whereas a core pillar for us. Um, and then the most interesting thing happened where during COVID, people went one of two ways. They either basically became stay-at-home alcoholics and went a little bit hard because they were bored um, or they used the time to become the best version of themselves. And I'd say there was probably equal quarters on either side and there was a 50% mixed bag in the middle. Um, And you had these people that were, particularly when the government was saying you can only go out for exercise, that's what they were doing. They were just, you know, probably having peak levels of exercise um, you know, they weren't drinking, they were looking for things to do. So we did these digital masterclasses and we were teaching, teaching people, you know, in their living rooms, like how to make, you know, non-alcoholic cocktails and one bottle would lead to another. And then post-COVID, uh, you, you know, I think initially we thought maybe this would be a, like a, a fleeting wave, but it's actually intensified. So this, this better for you wave has just continued and continued. And you look at what people are spending on health and wellness now and how they're prioritizing health and, the alcohol consumption rates continue to drop um, and there's, there's sober bars that are popping up everywhere from New York to London to Sydney, right? Like, um, you know, you'd never even imagine a concept like that five years ago, right? 
Yeah, no kidding. And obviously for this, you know, you guys have already raised uh, quite a bit of money, $82 million, uh, which is amazing. Now, I guess one thing that uh, comes to mind, and I'm sure that people listening, you know, are wondering is, how do you juggle about, you know, running two companies at the same time? Yeah, so look, in, in both cases, um, you know, I'm not the CEO of each. That, um, that definitely helps. I, I think uh, with, with the exception of maybe Elon Musk, who can seem to be the CEO of like five different things, uh, I think focus is everything. Um, you know, in both cases, I played more of a supporting role. So in Component, I'm chair. Um, I play an executive role in, um, you know, in Liars. And um, the and then, you know, got a portfolio of other things through the family office, um, which is smaller and a bit more passive. But I think it's for me about thinking about what value can I deliver? Um, and it, I think of a concept called ROE, return on effort. So, you know, there's executional or operational things that there's probably far better people than I that can do these things. But there's some complex deals, raising capital, uh, you know, governance stuff, um, particularly when the business is in multiple jurisdictions. And I've got lots of, you know, um, experience from the school of life, right? Like sometimes you learn the hard way of doing these things. So so for me, it's like I try to focus on the boulders, the big things, and let someone else work on the pedals. Um, so and, and in a lot of those cases, um, some big complex deals or, you know, capital rates, but they're very time consuming, right? So I think it allows me to focus on things where I can deliver a lot of value for the company and it might free up people to do day-to-day operational stuff, um, you know, where you really do need to be in the weeds um, day-to-day on some of those things. So I think it's just about dividing, conquering. And I think, um, you know, when you've got, when, if you've been a first-time founder and you've exited, you do reflect a lot and then you go, what am I good at? What am I great at? What am I terrible at? Um, and I think if you can put all your energy into the things you're good at, even if it's a narrower scope, you can probably do a couple of companies. Um, maybe that's Elon's success. You'd maybe have to get him on your uh, <laughs> on your podcast and ask him. But I, I assume, you know, there's things that as a founder that you can do and you can move mountains, right? Um, and, um, yeah, like obviously if you can bottle that, that energy and you can unleash it when it makes sense, um, you, you can have a big impact in businesses. Absolutely. So obviously now, you know, you've, uh, you've been pushing three companies, you know, one that you already exited very successfully. So, and now two that, uh, that you have, you know, as well of the, all the other stuff that you are, you know, uh, having on the family office, uh, side of things. But as you're now, you know, looking back and, and let's say I was to put you into a time machine and I was to bring you back in time, you know, maybe to that moment that you were thinking about launching a company of your own, you know, right before Temando and, uh, Let's say you had the opportunity of having a chat with your younger self and you could give your younger self one piece of advice before launching a company. What would that be and why, given what you know now? Uh, look, I'd probably say prioritize health. Um, the, the, I think the biggest personal learning is, um, you know, I was reasonably fit in my 20s and then I started a company. And I think it was like over a 10-year journey. It was like the law of diminishing returns. And I definitely think that um, if I could go back, I probably would have just tried to, get a better work-life balance and maintain health. Like I'm sort of feverishly protective of work-life balance now. Um, you know, just every morning I carve out time, I train six days a week and I've probably never felt better, right? Um, I think it's so easy uh, and I see this mistake happening all the time with founders where they like, they just put work above everything, above family, about fitness and it just erodes them, right? And uh, eventually you will break like, um, you know, we're pretty amazing as human beings, but we definitely have a limit that we can push ourselves to. 
Um, and I think, you know, you, uh, there's a lot of research that's coming out now that says like a successful founder or, uh, or a CEO, you know, almost we need to think of self being like a, like an athlete, right? As in, we've got to look after our bodies. We've got to look after our minds. Now, whatever you choose to do to do those things, like, whether it's, you know, meditation for the mind or whether it's running for, for the body, it's like, or swimming or in my case, kite surfing, love it, right? Because um, I think it's, it, you, you'll find a lot of entrepreneurs that do it is because it's both. <laughs> it's physical, but it forces you to be in the moment. It's the only thing I found that requires me, uh, you know, I just don't think about work because if, you, if you're doing that sport and you think about work, you're probably going to crash the kite <laughs> or hit a sandbank or something, you know, so kind of forces you um i think being on the mountain um you know a lot of the skiing sports and snowboarding i think similar as well um so just forces that disconnect right um but yeah certainly i think that um that is something which don't overlook um it's a common thing for founders i think to to sort of get that in balance and you're gonna it's, it's like a it's like technical debt right like you, you're gonna have to repay it at some time um and it can take many years to recover so yeah I think work-life balance, everything. And if, if the team, if your team is looking for you for inspiration, make sure you're setting the right example and saying like, it's okay to take a break in the middle of the day and have a walk and clear your mind and not burn out. Like mental health is absolutely everything. I love that. So Carl, for the people that are listening that would love to reach out and say, hi, what is the best way for them to do so? Uh, LinkedIn. Yeah, I'm very responsive on that um, as, as, as much as physically possible anyways these days. But uh, yeah, li LinkedIn's good. Uh, otherwise, I'm my name at every social handle. So yeah, can't miss me. I'm an early adopter. Well, easy enough. Well, hey, Carl, thank you so much for being on the Dealmaker Show. It has been an honor to have you with us today. Yeah, thanks for having me. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, you can reach me at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.